are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. So much about the way we live and do things will change because of the global pandemic, including how we buy things. In her 2020 talk from TED at BCG, commerce aficionado Nimisha Jane lays out how even online shopping can be more human with a focus on real relationships with sellers. The perk that sold me? She's promising we'll wind up with better stuff, too. Like TED Talks? You should check out the TED Radio Hour with NPR. Stay tuned after this talk to hear a sneak peek of this week's episode. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by the Project Management Institute. The real thought leaders are the ones who turn ideas into action. Project Management Institute has partnered with TED to showcase the changemakers turning ideas into reality. These powerful TED Talks from TED at PMI will inspire you to take action and make a big impact. Watch now at PMI.org TED. Growing up, one of my fondest memories was of going to a local market with my mom every month in the small town in India where we live. We would spend the morning walking through an intricate maze of small stores and street vendors, stopping at her favorite spots where everyone knew her, discovering what fruits were in season and what kitchenware was in stock. She would spend hours examining things from all angles, quizzing sellers on their quality and where they came from. They would show her the latest tools and gadgets, picking the ones that they knew she would like. And we always walked back happy and satisfied our arms overflowing with dozens of shopping bags, having bought so much more than what we originally intended. A decade later, as a college student in the bustling city of Delhi, my friends and I would spend a similar few hours every month on Fashion Street, a euphemism for a row of small stalls with the latest clothes at great prices. We would spend hours rummaging through piles of clothes, trying on dozens of trinkets, getting advice from each other on what looked good and what was on trend. We would then combine everything we had bought to negotiate a big discount. Each of us had different roles. One was great at putting the look together. Another one was better at negotiating the discount. And a third was always the timekeeper to make sure that we got back to school on time. Shopping is so much more than what you buy. It's a treasure hunt to discover something new, a personalized recommendation from someone you trust. It's a negotiation to get that great deal and a time spent catching up with friends and family. It's social, it's interactive, it's conversational. Over the last two decades, 
I have been researching consumers in emerging markets around the world, digging beneath the surface to truly understand who they are, how they live, and what they want when they go shopping. Shopping, like everything else, has moved online. Shopping online is great. It's convenient at the click of a button delivered to your doorstep. It has everything. It has great prices. But it's also static and impersonal. You sit alone in front of a computer or a mobile phone, scrolling through hundreds of choices, identified by an algorithm, delivered by a machine. When you do have a query, you interact with another machine or a bot, rarely an actual human being. What puzzles me about this is when you speak to a successful salesperson, they will always tell you that the secret to closing a sale is the conversation. People want to buy from other people. So why do we forget this most crucial ingredient when we shop online? This impersonal, anonymous experience is leaving many of us less satisfied. Returns are at an all-time high, and we're left feeling, did I buy too much? Did I buy too little? Does it really look good on me? Did I even need this? And for the one billion consumers who are new to the internet in emerging markets, shopping online can be overwhelming. They are unsure whether they'll get what they can see, unsure whether they can trust the seller, worried that their money will get lost in cyberspace. The question is, can we create authentic, real, human conversation at scale? Can we create online marketplaces that are convenient and abundant and human? The good news is that the answer is yes. Companies in emerging markets around the world, in China, India, and Southeast Asia, are doing just this using a model that I call conversational commerce. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But let me give you a few examples. First, Nisho, an Indian company, where you can build a trusted and authentic relationship with a seller online. The best part about shopping with my mum was that the sellers knew who she was, and she knew that she could trust them. They would scroll through the hundreds of choices in the store and pick and make personalized recommendations just for her, knowing what she would like and what would work for her. It's hard to imagine such a thing happening online and at scale, but that's exactly what Misho is doing. On Misho, you can shop over and over and over again. But instead of interacting with a stranger or a bot, you interact with the same person, a representative of Misho, who is a real human being that you interact with via social media. Over time, she gets to know you better. She knows your likes, your dislikes, what you buy and when you buy it. And you learn to trust her. For example, she will message my sister right before Diwali with a new range of handloom sarees. She knows my sister loves sarees. I mean, she has two cupboards full of them. But she also knows that my sister always buys a sari right before Diwali for the Indian festive season. And she also knows the kind of sarees she would like. So instead of sending her hundreds of choices, she picks and chooses the colors and styles that she knows my sister would like. And then 
she answers her relentless questions how does the silk feel how does the fabric fall will this color look nice on me and so many more it truly is a hybrid model combining the convenience and scale of a large company with the trusted personal relationship that you would expect from the shop around the corner my next example is las life on las life in thailand you can watch real sellers describing products to you via a live video stream now i love handbags and when i am in a store i like to examine a handbag from all angles before i buy it i need to feel the texture on my skin hang it on my shoulder and see how it looks see how long the strap is open it up and look at the pockets inside to make sure that there is enough space for all the millions of things i need to put into my handbag but when i try and buy a handbag online i just see a few pictures the basic shape and color and size but that's not enough is it to solve this problem last life has developed a platform where actual sellers real people can share information about clothes handbags gadgets cosmetics describing the products to you showing you what they are from the outside and the inside explaining what they like and what they don't like you can ask them questions and get instant responses so that you are much more comfortable with what you buy before you buy it over time you can watch more videos from the same seller and they start to feel more like a friend than a faceless machine and they help you understand what you're going to buy stay abreast of the latest trends and often discover things that you didn't even know existed and finally my favorite example ping duo duo one of the fastest growing chinese platforms where you can actually shop with your friends online you remember the fun i had shopping with my friends on fashion street rummaging through stalls finding that perfect sandal negotiating that great deal well on ping duo duo you can do just that it's lonely to shop online and i miss hanging out with my friends but on ping duo duo when i find a product i can either buy it myself at the regular price or i can share it with my friends via social media discuss it with them get their advice and if we all choose to buy it together we get a great deal these deals last only for a short time just like in the real world and there are lotteries and games and flash sales to keep all the excitement going it's a fascinating model really helping you rediscover the joy and connection of shopping with your friends and family in the bazaars of yore what's important to note is that these are not stray experiments in markets like china india and southeast asia over 500 million consumers engage in conversational commerce and these models are growing much faster than the traditional more static e-commerce platforms conversational commerce emerged to solve the needs of first time online shoppers but my research shows that it is equally compelling for more experienced shoppers not just in emerging markets but around the world in fact when we tested conversational commerce with consumers in the us they found it more compelling 
for the same reasons as consumers in Asia. Consumers who engage in conversational commerce spend 40% more with higher satisfaction and lower returns. I strongly believe that in the not-so-distant future, conversational commerce will become the norm, revolutionizing shopping around the world. And traditional e-commerce platforms like Amazon will need to adapt or risk becoming irrelevant. For brands, this is a crucial next step and an unprecedented opportunity. Moving on from mass marketing in the 20th century and analytics-based hyper-personalization in the last two decades to building a truly authentic and deep personal connection with their consumers. And for us shoppers, it brings back the magic, making online shopping finally feel human again. Thank you. Part of police officer Jeremy Brewer's job is delivering bad news. As we sat together, she asked me one question. What am I supposed to tell my kids? I could feel she didn't want me to answer that question. She wanted me to connect to the depth of that experience she was going through. Stories from speakers found through TED's Global Idea Search. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Subscribe or listen to the TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Don't wait until it's too late. Whether it's keeping you cooled down or heated up, Trinity Air prides themselves on honesty, integrity, and professionalism. Whether you need to repair your current home comfort system or fully replace it, Trinity Air has just what you need. Visit TrinityAir.com today to see how to get special financing for 60 months with approved credit. See dealer for details. If you're not ready to replace that system just yet, but it needs a little TLC, get $25 off any repair with mention of this ad. Trinity Air has been serving Metro Atlanta and surrounding areas for over 20 years. Trinity Air specializes in trade, but services all brands. Plus, every system Trinity Air installs has a peace of mind guarantee. Visit TrinityAir.com or call 770-486-COOL to book an appointment or even to apply for financing right online. That's TrinityAir.com or call 770-486-COOL and see for yourself why it's hard to stop a train. License number CM208547. PNAS Science Sessions are short, in-depth conversations with the world's most brilliant scientific minds. In less time than it takes to drink a cup of coffee, you can learn about bone and muscle mass loss during spaceflight, track the migration of Asian giant hornets, and explore the supernova that caused mass extinctions at the end of the Devonian period. Subscribe to Science Sessions on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, January 25th, already 2021. I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria, and we recorded this week's episode on Inauguration Day on January 20th. What a momentous day. I'm very excited about this week's show. But before we dive into it, I do want to thank those of you who continue to make Talk Nerdy possible week after week. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. And that is because of the selfless support from individuals just like you. This week's top patrons of the show include Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, Leonard Prince, Christopher Pitts, June Sapara, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Charles Payet, Brian Holden, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Daniel Lang, David J.E. Smith, Robert Christ, and Elise Christie. Thank you all so, so, so much. And remember, there are other ways to support the show. You can rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get the get your podcast, download the show. You can also shop in the Talk Nerdy store by visiting talknerdymerch.com or by going to the main show page at carasantamaria.com or talknerdy.com. All paths lead to the show. All right. I am very excited about this week's episode because I got to reconnect with an old friend and colleague. Her name is Susan Tyler Hitchcock, and she's the senior editor for the books division of National Geographic Partners. She's here this week to talk about the all new National Geographic Almanac 2021, trending topics, big ideas in science, photos, maps, facts, and more. This is an incredible compendium of art and photography and knowledge and information that runs the gamut, literally anything and everything you could want to know about the universe that we live in. This thing is jam-packed. I know you're going to love it as much as I do. I know you're going to love it as much as I did when I actually worked with the Almanac, both on 2019 and the 2020 versions. That's how much I care about this project. Um, I highly recommend you all go out and pick up your own copy. And without any further ado, here she is, Susan Tyler Hitchcock. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so happy to join you, Kara. It's great to talk. It is a good day in America, a fresh start. Um, we are recording on Inauguration Day, which is always an exciting day, regardless of, you know, where your politics lie, that um, it, it's just a real celebration of the democratic process here. So a little bit of a shift from my last episode when we were recording the day of the Capitol riots. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that'll be a fresher tone. tone today, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm really thrilled that we are, we have the opportunity to chat. Um, it might take a little bit of background for, for the folks listening. I think most of you probably know because I, I pushed it um, uh not pushed it. I, I promoted it on the show uh, a couple of years ago that I was involved in National Geographic's Almanac 2019 and 2020, which is this really beautiful compendium, like a lot of, in, you know, incredible photographs, a ton of information, um, pretty thick book that allows you to basically learn something new every single day of the year. Um, and then some, I think it's, yeah, it's almost 
Let's see. Yeah, it's definitely over 365 pages. And then this year for the Almanac 2021, Susan, my guest, who is absolutely so wonderful and who I worked with um, on the original too, has not only taken the reins as far as making the dang thing, but also doing my very small role in um, in working on the, what, what would you call it? Like the foreword to the book, right? Yeah, the foreword. That's a good way to yeah. put it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you you set the path, Kara, and I just followed. And um, <laughs> come on, you did all the work. <laughs> you were quizmaster number one. <laughs> I love it though. This it, this it's such a fun project to have been involved in, and of course, from where you're sitting, is such a different project because it. it I'm, I can only imagine that it was a ton, a ton, a ton of work. But I'm really excited to celebrate this book um, with you over the course of the hour that we have together. So maybe we can start back at the beginning. Uh, you are, uh, you know, senior editor for the books division at, mm-hmm. at National Geographic Partners. Mm-hmm. So you. oversee a lot of what happens over there? Like, what is the role of a senior editor? Well, we have editors um, at a senior level and then associate and an assistant level. And a senior editor, some publishing companies would call me an acquiring editor in the sense that I am at the level of making the plans for the book. But we have so few people in our group that um, I end up helping to make the books as well. We at National Geographic, we do acquire some books, which means that, you know, an author has an idea or has a manuscript and comes to us with a book sort of already formulated. But we do a lot of creating of our own books as well. And the Almanac is an example of that. We get an idea, we come up with a plan, we even sometimes come up with the outline and the contents of the book, and then we find contributors and pull them into the process. A lot of these books, like the Almanac, are totally team projects. Um, There's, you know, there's no way one person could do all of this. There's writing, there's editing, there's fact-checking, there's photo research, there's design, and then not to mention, you know, copy editing and proofreading and all that sort of thing. Uh, So it's a real team effort. Yeah, it's interesting when we often think about books, we think about, you know, a book is written by a person and there is an author to the book. But, you know, the Almanac doesn't have an author. The Almanac was was put together by so many different people. And for the purposes of, let's say, specifically the 2021 Almanac, was the entire thing done sort of in-house? Like these were all staff writers and editors and photographers at National Geographic? Um, well, okay. So writers, we do usually hire um, some freelance writers to help us. With that. We also, um, you know, we do harvest material from National Geographic Magazine, nationalgeographic.com online, um, Traveler Magazine. We have to, when we do that, we have to um, interpret it. We have to edit the, the text sometimes, and we have to certainly have to edit the, the visuals. Um, so in that way, there are lots of editors, I mean, lots of writers coming in to the mix. Um, we have one photo editor usually and a couple of graphic designers, one person um, who, like, I'm the senior editor in terms of the text content, and she's the art director in terms of the layout. And then she'll have a, a someone working under her 
who um, kind of does the the more technical, more sort of um, crafting it, putting it all together, as opposed to visualizing the look of the book. Um, so those, there are all those, and and it's um, it's hard to count how many people actually contribute if you go go into it that deeply. Gosh, yeah. Is there anybody whose job it is? Maybe this is your job to just develop the timeline and like keep track of everything. Yeah. So every book that we do has a project manager and often the Mm -hmm. senior editor is the project manager or sometimes there's a senior editor with a project manager under the senior editor. Um, In this case, I was the project manager and yeah, timeline. I mean, we've got a managing editor helps me set those deadlines. Um, But as a project manager, it was my responsibility to make sure that everybody was doing all of the things that they were supposed to be doing on time. Um, And there are lots of moving parts. Um, It's something that I love. um, And it's, it's, it can get complicated, but it, it's a, yeah. a, a fun challenge. And what a what a kind of boon that, you know, working at um, National Geographic, which is, I think, its own sort of complicated behemoth. And maybe in a minute we can we can parse exactly like where are the divisions and what you know, what are all the different like kind of businesses within a business. But even before we get to to that what what just a complicated but exciting opportunity to be able to as you sort of mentioned mine so much content i mean national geographic's instagram alone yes it's like mil- i mean how many followers does it have it's something oh, it is in the millions in the millions <laughs> and have, just all of the incredible photographers like keeps keeps cheering us on we're trying to get you know to the number of beyonce and that kind of thing <laughs> right up there in the top 10 as i understand it <laughs> how cool but then also how overwhelming to say okay we're gonna do a 2021 almanac we're gonna talk about what are the big ideas in science and nature and conservation and, you know, exploration and travel and all of these beautiful things with maps and photos and, and blurbs and information and infographics. Like, how do you even know where to start? It's, um, it's a challenge and it's a guess in some ways, an educated guess. I mean, the, the first chapter of the book is called Trending and we, it's divided into five big ideas. And we work so far ahead that there is this sort of, you know, take, take a plunge, you know, sort of take a, take a guess on what are going to be the big things, um, in the next coming year or so. Um, we watch, you know, watch the news, watch the, um, media, watch National Geographic itself, um, to see what, um, ideas and, um, initiatives are being emphasized and then try to, um, kind of dive into those and, and, and learn more so that we can share with the readers. Yeah. And so when we, when we look at these tre- trending um, uh, topics at the very beginning of the book, I'm seeing everything from obviously infectious disease to water to biodiversity and conservation and to kind of learning more about, and I guess I should say deeper into the cosmos through next generation um, imaging technology within astronomy. So it really is just wide ranging. But the idea here is to say 2021, 
what is going to be on the horizon for 2021? You know, one really interesting backstory on this is that if you notice, we do have two spreads on the coronavirus. We have one spread on the coronavirus, and then the, the partner spread is is on all the, the infectious agents that humans um, uh, experience a virus as being one of uh, mm-hmm. five that we feature. Well, this was not in the plan back in the fall of what would that be, 2019, which is why right. we started planning what should be our trending topics. And we were ready to go to the printer in March of last year when it became really <laughs> clear that this would be this book would be off the mark if we did not include something about the coronavirus. So we, I won't quite say pulled it off the presses, but we did pull it back from the printer and created those two spreads at the very last minute um, in order to be a little more timely. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because thinking back to the work that, um, that we did on 2019 and 2020s, like, yeah, we, no, nobody saw. I mean, we all saw it coming in in the general sense, but nobody saw it coming in a specific, like this is going to happen this year and it'll be this type of um, infectious agent. Yeah. We worked so far ahead because, um, you know, the the whole process of, of proofreading and then getting things to the printer, especially when you have all these color photographs that take a lot of um, precision work um, in pre-press as well as the printer at the printer. And then we print overseas in Asia and Mm -hmm. books are shipped by, um, by um, freight. What what do you call it? Freighter, not freighter. What do you call those? Yeah. Like a big boat. Big boats, right. (laughs) I don't know. Oh. <laughs> and, and then we have to get the books into the warehouse about two months before they actually go on sale in a bookstore. So we have to send a book to the printer. We have to be done with it six to eight months before it actually is in the bookstores. And that is wow. that is one of the challenges of doing a, an almanac because you want it to be timely you want it to be of the moment and up to date and but our our manufacturing process and our shipping process is such that that we can't quite be as up to date as we'd like to be so yeah and and, but it's it's still so important that it be this physical tactile um book it's you know one of the things that i love the most about the almanac um is that like you mentioned, it's so colorful. It's so digestible. It's written in this very kind of um, short burst way that you can flip to any page and learn something new, or you can, um, you know, find something specifically based on the index or the or the table of contents, or you can read it cover to cover like a book. But regardless of that, it's it's this kind of the truest form of a I don't know a coffee table book. Yet mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not pretentious. It's, it's affordable. I mean, it's a $20 book here in the United States, only 20 bucks, but it's got, you know, well over 350 pages of, of beauty. And it's, it's also speaks to all levels. You know, there's a, like your, your grandmother could read it and your child could read it. And I think that's so cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad you see that. We certainly try that way. And, and we try to, have a little bit of something for everything for everyone, and mm-hmm. also um, 
One of the things we decided to do from the very beginning in the 2019 Almanac was to um, sort of divide it into, um, to create a layout that had chunks, little chunks that one could um, read and and, uh, enjoy. Um, So you could really browse and like read a paragraph here, a paragraph there and still have fun with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I really I think that resonates a lot. I mean, that's that's definitely how um, some of my friends have told me. (laughs) I remember back when I was working on the on the last two and um, and some of my friends would buy their copies and they were like, do you know what I call this? I call this like a bathroom book. And I'm not saying that to denigrate it. I'm saying that to celebrate it. Like every time somebody at their house would use the bathroom, they'd come out and be like, did you know? (laughs) It is the ultimate bathroom book. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just love that so much. It's so true. So, you know, maybe before we get to some of the content of the book we had, we had pointed to earlier this, um, this confusion or complication around National Geographic as this behemoth that's been around for so long, that's been guiding culture and really like a, uh, an icon, you know, that yellow rectangle for mm-hmm. so long. Mm-hmm. I personally, for a decent part of my career, have long felt uh, a kinship with National Geographic. I really feel like I'm home and it's my family. And it's interesting because I'm not a staff, you know, I never have been on staff at National Geographic in any role. I've always been a freelancer who gets hired to do work with them. Mm-hmm. But even I've been super confused about, okay, I'm working with the books division. Wait, is this, okay, now I'm doing TV, but is yeah. what's the difference between the society and the partners? Yeah. So maybe you can help me make a little bit of sense of well, what this company is. I I can help a little bit, but I have to say it's, it's always a bit of a moving target. <laughs> right, okay. Corporately. So uh-huh. um, and quite a few years ago, and I can't tell you exactly what it is, but maybe five years ago, a deal was struck between the National Geographic Society, which has mm-hmm. now been in existence 130 some years, between the and was and it always and is still a nonprofit. Um, okay. The deal was struck between the nonprofit National Geographic Society and 21st Century Fox, and um, 21st Century Fox made a significant contribution like 750 million i believe mm-hmm. to the endowment of the nonprofit national geographic society in exchange for majority ownership of all the profit making parts of national geographic which involved gotcha. television magazines books um expeditions um all of the things that were actually profit making businesses that became National Geographic Partners in the oh, last. Okay, that's the yeah. distinction. That's the distinction. Okay. There is still a very close relationship between National Geographic Society and National Geographic Partners, and there is a kind of a corporate um, uh, link. But there also mm-hmm. is just like a spiritual link. We are very, um, you know, clo- we work really closely with National Geographic Society and all of its um, initiatives and missions um, and try really hard um, and find content in what they are supporting um, in science and exploration and then um, 
bring it over into the magazine or into books um, that, or, or lectures or that sort of thing. So um, since that time, though, remember Disney mm-hmm. acquired 21st Century Fox. <laughs> yeah. So we are now a Disney company. And um, and all, all along the way, there's been the pie's been cut up and cut up and cut up again. So who we're connected with in the organization keeps changing. But all along, this uber identity of National Geographic pulls us all together. Yeah, yeah. And and so the the partners, um, which we think of as more like you were saying, the profit generating portion of the company, um, there is a line, although there's a lot of, um, as you said, a spiritual connection between that and the um, and the society. But the role of the society has long been to help fund explorers and researchers to help yes. fund um, exploration and research and exactly. to celebrate science and exploration. That is exactly right. That's right. Yep. And I will say also that all of our products um, give back to the society. I mean, one Mm. of the reasons that our books um, have a little thing on the back that says, um, when you read with us, you help further the work of our scientists, explorers, and educators around the world. That is literally and monetarily true. Every one of our books contributes about a 25, it may even be up to 28% of our, um, of our profit goes back to the National Geographic Society. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about specifically about the Almanac is that you also, within its pages, get to celebrate the work of members of the, the society or of that's explorers right. that are endowed yeah. by the society. That's exactly right. And that, uh, we feel that's kind of um, an assignment on our part to to discover the really interesting stories and the fascinating people that National Geographic is um, supporting with grant money in their um, science and exploration. Yeah. So I've got to ask when, you know, this is the third year that the Almanac has been um, available, has been in production. Um, what inspired you and the team to take that plunge there before 2019 and say, we're going to do this really big, really complex project? Well, there is a very easy answer to that, which is the success of the Kids Almanac. Um, the Kids Book Group within National Geographic has is now into its 12th or 13th or 14th year um, publishing an almanac. And it's been a huge success for them. And um, my uh, my boss, um, who's the publisher and editorial director, had been saying for years, um, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And yeah. so we finally um, kind of took the concept of almanac uh, the concept of a of a book full of information and uh, took it to the adult level. Um, so we really were inspired by the success of the Kids Almanac. That's brilliant. And so the Kids Almanac is 
similar in its design or its scope? Like what were some of the iterations that you made to say, how do we make this right for a broader and, you know, a little bit of an older audience? That's not to say that kids don't enjoy it, of course. Right. Yeah. Actually, one of the things we began to realize is that what we were making was the, the almanac that a kid would enjoy once he or she got too old for the kids almanac. Right. Um, and w- we there are certain ways in which um the adult almanac um was inspired and mirrors the kids that it maybe the most important is that the 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 end of the book is a just a solid atlas basically. It's mm-hmm. we have um maps of all the continents, we have flags and facts about every country in the world and that's something that the kids almanac does every year as well. Um, also sort of thematic chapters that represent the range of, um, uh, content that is important to National Geographic. That was another thing that we picked up from, um, from the Kids Almanac. But in terms of design, um, and approach, we really needed to go at it our own way. Um, so we, you know, we were inspired, but we also took it, took it in our own direction. Yeah. And when when I think about the kind of design, even as I'm flipping through the 2021 Almanac, um, the design and the imagery, it's such a mix of graphic design, of um, of infographics, of artist renderings, and then of obviously photography, which is mm-hmm. such an important celebration with within the sort of National Geographic um, brand. And so how did you go about, you know, gosh, just like choosing which images were going to best represent these different stories? You know, um, one of the hardest part, every chapter has at least one, sometimes two uh, spreads that we call the Atnat Geo spreads. They're they're the best of Atnat Geo. They are from our Instagram account, and they are great photographs. Um, each uh, each spread has a different theme. I'm looking right now at the one. Um, it's called Top Photos of Aerial Views. So that we searched our photo editor and our designer searched um, the whole realm of. Um, Instagram, Nat Geo Instagram photos to find the best eight aerial views that they could find. Um, mm. So that is, um, it's a challenge. Um, we try to make sure that there is diversity in the photographers that we're showing. Um, yeah. And uh, we also always have a, a line or two just saying what that photograph is. One of my favorite parts, actually, of the book is the last page of every chapter. Um, the the, the, the uh, motto of National Geographic for several years now has been further. And so mm-hmm. we call these um, sections the further page. So every chapter ends with a further page. And it's kind of like some bit of information, some little story about the world um, that kind of looks beyond the obvious to, to suggest uh, something new and different. And I, those photographs are always spectacular. One of my favorites, I'm going to try to flip to it right now. This is so amazing. This is what the chapter called um, Yesterday to Tomorrow is the history chapter. And mm-hmm. our photo editor found this amazing photographer. His name is Bernard Smilda. 
And okay. he would go to um, famous places all around Europe and create a cloud inside. So this <gasps> I'm seeing it right now. Oh my gosh, this is It's a beautiful Gothic cathedral with um, stained glass windows, and there's a cloud in the middle of the cathedral. I just love it. <laughs> so weird and amazing. It? it really yeah. is. Yeah. And it's like you would think it looks fake, but it doesn't look fake. It doesn't no. look shopped. It doesn't, you can tell yeah. there is actually a cloud in the middle of this cathedral. Yes. It's so neat. Oh, and I love there, that. There's so another much. one, the one for the, um, the chapter that we call The Science of Us is about um, human um, culture and human health. And the further chapter of that is this amazing photograph of this. Um, festival that happens um, in a particular town in the Philippines every year, the Dianyang Festival. And there are these amazing, colorful headdresses all in turquoise and gold and these guys just dancing their hearts out. I just love that picture too. <laughs> oh, just absolutely stunning. Hey, Atlanta, as we enter the new year, it's the perfect time to start planning for your healthy, pest-free lawn with True Green, America's number one lawn care company. True Green's science-based approach and local expertise will help give your lawn the year-round care it needs to be thick and weed-free. Go to TrueGreen.com radio to take advantage of our special New Year's offer and save 50%. Just call 1-877-415-5296 or go to TrueGreen.com radio today to take advantage of this limited-time offer for a greener, healthier lawn that you can be proud of it's a new year and with t-mobile it's not about how far apart we are it's about how close we can be so we're bringing out our best deal right now get the iphone 12 on us on every single plan with eligible iphone trade-in so i can facetime with my sister in savannah that's right the iphone 12 on us on every plan all on america's 5g leader in coverage t-mobile with 24 monthly bill credits and a new line plus tax if you cancel credit stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due contact us for well-qualified buyers qualifying consumer plan required see coverage and offer details at t-mobile and you know what what I have to say, I mean, one of the things that I'm always really drawn to um in the Almanac, and of course I love the photography. The photography is amazing, but I'm really drawn to the the infographics and all of the times within, and I don't know how how you refer to this, but all of the times within where there are examples of diversity within subjects. So like there's a page that's just animal tracks or a page yeah. that's different seashells, for example, or uh -huh. a page that's, you know, comparing different minerals and being able to see an, a concept, a category that we think of sometimes as being mundane and then see all the variability and variation within it. And it's even still just a tiny little sliver of the actual diversity that exists on this planet. We call those our field guides pages. And my favorite one of all is the one that's called Who's, Who's Caterpillar? And um, so we have caterpillars on the left-hand side and the butterflies and moths that they become on the right-hand side. So you can actually pair them up and see. Um, they don't look at anything like each other. But, yeah. <laughs> but you can never guess. Oh, I yeah. see that page right now. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, incredible. I love that one. <laughs> And I also have to say, I love the timelines. I mean, it's such a simple ah, yeah. idea, but I'm so glad it's included because it really speaks to this understanding that in order for us to forecast into the future or even know the the universe that we live in today, we have to understand the past and how we got here. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, those were quite, um, they were definitely difficult. I mean, they look so finished, but in fact, there is a lot of first kind of like research and selection of the items. Of course, um, the timelines are all illustrated, so we have to find really good photos or artwork that goes with them. And then they're all very carefully fact-checked. And in some cases, especially when you're going back in time, um, there's a lot of controversy about when things happen. So um, we we had to be pretty um, exacting um, in order to pull those together. But but they've been fun. And those do, we did um, update those with every edition, um, mostly just kind of looking at the last column, the um, up to the present day and adding anything that seemed like it was really going to end up being a milestone in that phase of history, um, uh, you know, going forward. Um, that's always a difficult thing to decide what what is happening today that's going to be going into the history books. Um, <laughs> so right, like less difficult in twenty twenty probably, but you're right. <laughs> oftentimes, that's a difficult question. <laughs> Maybe in twenty twenty, the difficulty is just choosing from amongst exactly. all the history making things. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really across the board, right? So, you know, you look at a timeline and you think, okay, these are important, you know, events in human history that led us to where we are today. But obviously, that's such an editorial question. There there that requires so much curation. You there's not there's not a reality of what matters versus what doesn't matter. That there's a there's a subjectivity to that. So, what a what a difficult process of having to select and put your nickel down on, okay, we can only fit 20 things. These are the 20 things, for example. Yep, exactly. And these are the 20 things. And by the way, they all have to have a good picture to go with them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's so visual. There's nothing in the almanac that isn't visually represented. So even though there's a, quite a bit of text in the sense that you, you're always reading and learning something, most of the text is labels. It's um, it's like subheadings. Maybe there are some paragraphs here and there, but they're all tied back to the imagery in, mm-hmm. in a really special way. Mm-hmm. Well, and that is what National Geographic does. I mean, that is really the the tradition of National Geographic, whether we're looking at the magazines or we're looking at, you know, television, we're looking at our museum, um, the, the visual really is the predominating mode. And um, it's true in our books as well. Yeah. You know, one of the the um, sections in the book that was unexpected from the beginning, I think when we think about an almanac, there are probably certain things that if you put 10 different groups in 10 different rooms and said, what should be included? Mm. There might be a lot of consensus among them to say, oh, we got to talk about space or we've definitely got to talk about medicine or we should definitely talk about, you know, um, travel. But there were sections within the um, within the almanac that I I never would have thought of. And one of the one that really resonates with me personally is the quiz master at the beginning of each of the sections. Yeah. Um, So I was lucky enough that you you sort of passed the baton to me in 2019 and 2020 to, to serve in that role as Nat Geo quiz master. And in 2021, 
um, I pass that baton back to you. And so I was hoping maybe you could share what it means to be a quiz master and how those pages sort of came to be. Sure. So the whole idea of the quiz master pages is that each chapter is so full of little bits of knowledge um, that we thought our readers might like to play a game with themselves. And instead of a table of contents for each chapter, we have the quiz master spread, which is um, questions. You might think of them as they're sort of like trivia questions. They are a lot like what you would... Um, if you go to a you know trivia game, um, mm-hmm. there are a lot like those kinds of questions, and they are asked on the quizmaster page, and then there's a little hint of what page you can go to within the chapter to answer the question. Um, and those have been really fun to do. And I have to say that as our fact checker has been checking the information in the the regular pages she also checks these questions and sometimes comes up with either needing they need to be reworded or that's not really what that article says or mm-hmm. it's, it's been quite a challenge to get them and then it, these are very highly designed pages and illustrated so there's a lot of work that goes into those um quizmaster pages but they're a lot of fun um, oh, here's an example. For example, this is from the um, chapter, the science of our chapter. And I don't know the answer to this, so we're going to have to look <laughs> for it. Where will you find the most microbe species on your foot, far, forearm, or face? Ooh, foot, Ooh. forearm, or face. I bet you on your face. I could be wrong, though. Oh, page 272. Let me see if I can find <laughs> Oh, this is so fun because you could really gamify this, whether it's just with yourself yeah. reading or if you're sitting yeah. down with your family. All right, here's the answer. Um, let me just read the first couple of sentences on this page. The human body contains as many microbes as it does cells, nearly 30 trillion of them. Several ecosystems are found on our skin. Your forearm has the richest community with an average of 44 species. What? Is that just because it's like out in the... Yeah, I guess so. It's kind of forward facing. I know. I guess. And you don't wash your forearms. Like even though your hands would pick up bugs all the time, you wash your hands a lot, but your forearms are neglected. Wait, maybe from now on they... This, you know, sing happy birthday twice. You have to go up your forearm as well. Yeah. Yeah. You see surgeons, right? When they're prepping for surgery, they scrub all the way up to their elbows. There you go. For Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. I remember 14, I think it's 14 uh, questions for each chapter at the beginning. 14. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's like a a good game. I remember when. when I was doing promotion around the 2019 and 2020 almanacs, one of the things that all of the like news anchors and radio personalities loved to do was just straight up quiz me out of the blue. They'd be, they would just flip to a page and be like, what is the most endangered fish? And I was like, I have no idea. So I'm like desperately flipping through pages to try to answer the question. Well, I don't think we can claim to know 
everything that's in this book. Sometimes I say, as a writer and as an editor, it comes in the eyeballs and out the fingertips. (laughs) (laughs) And what a great thing about this book is that, you know, you can really like, there, there's almost too much. And I love that. It's, you know, you can pick it up so many times. You can even read the same pa- chapters and the same pages multiple times, and you're going to get something new every yeah. single time you pick it up. I, I, you know, we've definitely, we, in creating this book, we've loved to have these little bits and pieces and uh, mm. it's fun. It's fun that way. Yeah, absolutely. So I got to ask, I mean, we did mention the Quizmaster pages, um, but mm-hmm. maybe beyond that, as you know, a senior editor on this project and overseeing it as the project manager, what were what sticks out to you as some of the more challenging parts of putting something like this together? Hmm. Well, let's see. The the Instagram for sure. Mm-hmm. Um I would say for design purposes, I mean, I'm looking right now at one of our spreads in the um, the, sci- the nature chapter, which um, ha- has an infographic that came from the magazine. And, mm-hmm. you know, the magazine has a certain proportion and you can sometimes even fold out a page, but we take oh, right. the art and then recreate it for the, the proportions of our page. So that's a challenge. It's not an editor's challenge, but I still need to keep looking at it and making sure we're pulling in what we need and dropping out what we don't need. Um, I would say the other challenge, every chapter has several of what we call geniuses. Um, that's a, a, a term that we've kind of borrowed from the the National Geographic channels um series um genius which has featured um uh einstein and then picasso and now aretha franklin coming up um Mm -hmm. so we have genius spreads um throughout and choosing people um to represent various fields um who have a story to tell who have good pictures, <laughs> who represent the diversity of the world and of concerns. Um, that's, that's, you know, it's a challenge, but it's one that is satisfying to meet. Um, yeah. So, and, and in this case, we have a few people who are in fact, National Geographic um, explorers, like a woman, Ray Wynn Grant, who is a, a bear specialist, a, a, a mammal specialist. Um, Jane Goodall, for example, who had her start with National Geographic. And then we, you know, we include even a few um, people who are no longer with us. I'm trying to remember who did we have as a genius for um, uh, history, and I'm not remembering. But, you know, it's um, it's always interesting to find the right people. Right. Uh, Especially understanding those constraints of history and, you know, history was written by the victors and who had a voice and whose voice was was silenced. And so to find sometimes these kind of hidden figures and celebrate them against a, a background of difficulty. I mean, what a what a big thing to grapple with in, in writing such a such a tome. Hmm, yeah. So here. Yeah. So wh- who we ended up with? 
um, in the history section. And in times past, I know in one of the two earlier um, uh, almanacs, we featured um, Ada Lovelace, who was, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a 19th century woman, English woman who um, one could say contributed to the first computers. Um, we have, but this year we have um, Amelia Earhart, um, who was very much in the news, um, not this last summer, but the summer before, because our um, our wonderful uh, ocean explorer, Bob Ballard, went looking for her. Um, right. Lane didn't find it, but he told me recently he's going back. So we'll see. <laughs> and then we have a um, we have a also a genius page on a um, a uh, an interesting archaeologist, Pierce Paul Kriesman, who does work um, in Egypt, and he's discovered that there are um, pyramid structures that are now underwater. So he's actually, he dives in the basements of pyramids, basically, to an archaeologist. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating and also really kind of scary. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm like, that's going to be a horror movie soon, right? Some sort of like... Really? Yeah. So I'm wondering, as you're putting this thing together and kind of helming the ship of so many incredible, um, incredible, hardworking people, what are some of the things that stick out for you that were the most, um, uh, on the flip side of that, like the most satisfying things, some of the things that you felt after the fact, wow, that turned out like better than I could have expected. I'm really proud of either that section or that, you know, component of the of the almanac. Um, boy, I, that's a hard question to answer. I, in a way, <laughs> the book itself is the biggest answer to that question. Right. Um, I do, I am happy with, we always have ended the book with um, a couple, with three spreads about the future that are map-based spreads. And mm-hmm. I think they're very interesting and meaningful um they're kind of simple in their look compared to a lot of the other spreads but we have one on um called future of the planet that shows um climate risk um Mm -hmm. where it's the most extreme and where it's the lowest um then we have one called future of the wild on earth and um that is a world map that's shaded to show where the the largest proportion of um terrestrial wild animals live in the world and then the last one is our um a map on the future of humans on earth and that um Re- reflects um, urban populations and where um, in the earth, where, where in the world people are more concentrated in cities than in the country. So each of these maps um, at a glance are pretty simple, but when you think about them and, and look at them and use them as a stepping point um, for thought, they really say a lot about our world and where we're headed. Oh, yeah. And it really goes to show that with you know 
with a lot of data at our fingertips, we have the ability to conceptualize it, to utilize it, to tell a story in so many different ways. And because we as creatures have grown up in a world where data visualization has started to become more second nature to us, Mm -hmm. we can take in a lot in just an image. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and it is, it, it's true. And it's so interesting. I mean, I think I've gotten so much more respectful of that working on atlases um, and the almanac here at National Geographic, respectful of how much information gets concentrated into what looks like, you know, a map with a few colors on it. But there's so much being um, brought together and so much being said in those maps. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I gotta say, I do love the maps. They're one of my favorite parts for sure. Actually, that's one thing. I, I mean, that was one part of this book this year that I wrote that I have so much fun with. So every, um, every almanac has this Atlas section, the last, um, the last chapter, and we have a a map of every continent and every ocean. And Mm -hmm. in order to keep it updated and new for each issue, uh, for each Mm -hmm. year, we um, find very interesting little tidbits of information that we can add to the map. So we have call outs with little paragraphs on some of the, just an interesting bit of information. Um, For example, I'm here looking at the map of North America and here's a little call out from the uh, from Greenland, which says that one third of all citizens of Greenland live in the city of Nook, which is located on the southeast or uh, southwest corner of the mostly ice covered. Um, wow! So one third of all citizens of Greenland live in this this one city, uh, which is nevertheless one of the world's smallest capitals. So oh, weird. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So every map has new little bits of information about that continent or that ocean on it. Oh, I love that so much. I mean, it just shows you like so many different ways to to conceptualize the world that we live in and beyond. Because, of course, one of the things that we didn't even dive into and probably don't even have time to dive into is everything that exists beyond the boundaries of our planet. I mean, there's a whole big, big section about the, the great beyond. There you go. Wonderful maps, not only maps of the sky, you know, sky charts with with um, stars and constellations, but we also have maps of the moon, both the near and the far side and maps of Mars um, in the book. Um, And a section, a new section this year on the various moons um, with imagery that is coming to us from these space probes um, that are bringing us information about the moons of other planets that we've never known known about before. Oh, gosh, I love that so much. And, you know, there's so much more to dig into with this almanac. Of course, we're, there's no way we could ever cover it verbally here on the show. And why would we? Because it's so visual. So um, it's been a it's been available since before the new year started, right? It's been on the shelves yeah. and people yeah, can, can pick it up. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So wherever books are sold. Yeah. Yep, definitely um, available wherever books are sold, if not in your bookstore, certainly online. And um, it is, uh, it is, 
there to be had. National Geographic Almanac 2021. Excellent. All right. Well, well, Susan, before we go, you know, I ask all of my guests the same two questions to close the episode. And I'm really going to be interested to hear your take, especially because of the work that you do at National Geographic, because of the work that you do on these incredibly thorough publications and, and you know, your own personal perspective. So are you ready for these big picture questions? Okay. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> I want you to think about the future, which you do all the time in your work. <laughs> and um, and tell me for you personally, what is the thing that's been keeping you up the most at night, the thing that you've been most concerned about? But then on the flip side of that, where are you finding hope? Where are you finding your optimism? And what are you looking forward to? Well, this is going to sound like a real National Geographic answer, but that's the way I my life is. And I think I'd feel this way even without. I'm the most concerned about our the health of our planet, about, um, you know, the fact that we haven't done as much as we should as a world to... Um, come together and find ways to value and preserve um, the environment, the, the habitats, um, the ocean, as well as the land. Um, that really does concern me. And I, I don't know that in my lifetime, I'm going to see the disastrous results, but I worry that in 100 or 200 years, it's really going to be horrible. <laughs> um, yeah. Where do I get hope? I get hope from the people that I work with. I've been working on a big book of, about the ocean with Sylvia Earle, who is kind of like her. the grand master of all things ocean. And I also worked this summer on a book with Enrique Sala, who is also a person who has just totally devoted his life to um, the ocean and to encouraging countries around the world to protect pieces of the ocean. Um, I, I, I am so honored and um, just impressed by people like Enrique and Sylvia who just devote their whole life and imagination to saving the planet. And um I am thankful that they're there and I'm grateful that I can help their message get to more people. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm so grateful for that as well. You know, that there is an outlet, that there is a a place where these messages can be um, fostered and curated and made available to the the people that really are are interested, are craving, and are needing to hear them. And and through your role at National Geographic in um, you know producing these incredible um, these incredible works, I mean, it really does. I think make all of us more informed, more um, knowledgeable, and also. You know, really more entertained. Um, I, I really, really value that, and I'm so glad, um, Susan, that we were able to take some time together to walk a little bit down memory lane, but also also to look to the future. Yeah, thank you so much. I I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I I do love my job, and I do love this almanac that we've put together. Um, and I'm happy to share them. 
Oh, absolutely. Everybody, you guys need to pick it up. National Geographic Almanac 2021. Trending topics, big ideas in science, photos, maps, facts, and more. Susan Tyler Hitchcock, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Well, Kara, thank you for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. Absolutely. And everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. It's a new year. And with T-Mobile, it's not about how far apart we are. It's about how close we can be. So we're bringing out our best deal. Right now, get the iPhone 12 on us on every single plan with eligible iPhone trade-in. So I can FaceTime with my sister in Savannah. That's right. The iPhone 12 on us on every plan. All on America's 5G leader in coverage. T-Mobile. With 24 monthly bill credits and a new line plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us for well-qualified buyers. Qualifying consumer plan required. See coverage and offer details at T-Mobile.com. It's a new year, and with T-Mobile, it's not about how far apart we are. It's about how close we can be. So we're bringing out our best deal. Right now, get the iPhone 12 on us on every single plan with eligible iPhone trade-in. So I can FaceTime with my sister in Savannah. That's right. The iPhone 12 on us on every plan. All on America's 5G leader in coverage. T-Mobile. With 24 monthly bill credits and a new line, plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us for well-qualified buyers. Qualifying consumer plan required. See coverage and offer details at T-Mobile.com. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. There are still so many parts of the world that are literally not on the map. That is, so rural that mapping technology hasn't reached it to plot the roads or geographical terrain. This can be dangerous for the people in these places, many of them in Africa. In his 2020 talk, Tawanda Kanema makes the case for prioritizing accurate mapping in places that need it the most and why it is so important. Like TED Talks? You should check out the TED Radio Hour with NPR. Stay tuned after this talk to hear a sneak peek of this week's episode. A few years back, my friend's dad asked me to show him my mom's house on the map. I knew we didn't have street view in Zimbabwe yet, but I looked anyway, and of course, we couldn't find it. When you look at most mapping platforms, you'll find that parts of the African continent are largely missing. And I've wondered, Is it the people, is it the technology, or is it the terrain? For nearly a billion people on the continent, it's an accepted reality that certain technologies are just not built for us. When Cyclone Idai flooded parts of Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi in 2019, killing 1,300 people and displacing hundreds of thousands of others, it left more than just destruction. It left a new awareness of the consequences of omission in the way we build technology. As rescue workers arrived in the region in search of survivors, we learned that thousands of displaced people were in unmapped areas, making it difficult to reach them with much-needed food and medical supplies. There was no accurate accounting of what had been lost. For those in unmapped areas, a natural disaster often means no one will come to find you. Thankfully, As the tools used to build some of the maps we use today become more easily accessible, we can be part of the solution. Anyone with a computer 
or a cell phone can play a role in improving the representation of communities that are missing accurate maps. In two weeks, I photographed 2,000 miles of Zimbabwe, and with every single mile I captured, I got closer to an answer and a better sense of what it means to not be on the map. As I started to prepare for my mapping journey, I learned that while many of the maps we use today are built on proprietary technology, the pieces that make up that canvas often have open source origins. I could combine those pieces with off-the-shelf products to build maps that are accessible on both commercial and open source platforms. I started with a very rudimentary setup, a 360-degree action camera stuck outside the window of my brother's car. After capturing a few dozen miles of city streets, I borrowed a proper camera from the Street View Camera Loan program, allowing me to capture high-resolution imagery, complete with location, speed, and other vital layers of data. I adapted that camera to sit on a backpack I could carry, and with the help of a few more contraptions, we were able to mount it to the dash of a helicopter, the bow of a speedboat, and the hood of an all-terrain vehicle. My journey started at Victoria Falls, one of the seven natural wonders of the world, and then I headed east to the 11th century city of Great Zimbabwe, before retracing my footprints home, finally putting my hometown on the map. And yet much of the region remains all but invisible on some of the most widely used mapping platforms. Beyond navigation, maps are a proxy for what we care about. They tell us about the quality of the air we breathe, the potential for renewable energy solutions, and the safety of our streets. In a sense, maps are a form of storytelling. When you look at the state of mapping on the African continent today, you'll find a patchwork of coverage, often driven by humanitarian need in the wake of natural disasters, rather than by deliberate and sustained efforts to build out digital infrastructure and improve overall service delivery. What the continent is lacking are maps that tell the story of how people live, work, and spend time, illuminating environmental and social issues. With more than 600 million cell phones in the hands of people between Cape Town and Cairo, and centers of innovation in the cities in between, this is achievable. Every single one of those devices in the hands of a contributor to an open source mapping platform become a powerful source of imagery that forms a vital layer of data on maps. With virtual maps, mapping is no longer just about cartography. It's become a way to preserve places that are undergoing constant and sometimes dramatic change. High-resolution imagery turns maps into a living canvas on which we can instantly experience the rhythm and visual ethnography of a city, often from thousands of miles away. City planners are able to measure traffic density or pick out problem intersections. And in the case of Northern Ontario, where I mapped ice roads in partnership with the local government, you can now explore 500 miles of winter roads along the western edge of the James Bay. Every winter, after 10 days of minus 20 degree temperatures, engineers begin the work to build the road of the season. These roads only exist for 90 days, connecting communities across hundreds of miles of frozen tundra. Being on the winter roads of northern Ontario, after mapping parts of Namibia, one of the warmest places on the planet, exposed me to the many ways in which communities are using maps 
to understand the pace and impact of changes in the environment. So, after mapping 3,000 miles in Zimbabwe, Namibia, and northern Ontario, and publishing nearly half a million images to Street View, reaching more than 26 million people on maps, I know it's not the technology, it's not the people, and it's clearly not the terrain. Every other day, I hear from scientists who are using maps to understand how our built environment influences health outcomes. Teachers using virtual reality in the classroom and humanitarian workers using maps to protect the vulnerable. A dad wrote to me to say he'd finally been able to show his girls the house in which he grew up and the hospital in which he was born in Harare. Think about the last time you gave directions to a stranger. When we contribute to connected maps, we are giving directions to millions. And that stranger may be the occasional tourist, a researcher, a first responder, a rescue worker working on unfamiliar terrain. As we begin to think about how to bridge the digital divide, we should go beyond the traditional narrative of data extraction and consumption and think more critically about the role you and I play in the creation of the technologies and tools we use every day. The goal is not to map every inch of the planet, but to spare a moment to think about where those tools are most needed, the consequences of our mission, and the role you and I can play in filling those gaps and building a more connected world together. Thank you. Part of police officer Jeremy Brewer's job is delivering bad news. As we sat together, she asked me one question. What am I supposed to tell my kids? I could feel she didn't want me to answer that question. She wanted me to connect to the depth of that experience she was going through. Stories from speakers found through TED's Global Idea Search. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Subscribe or listen to the TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. I think you'll agree that the iconic founders who join us on the show are masters of creativity. From the initial spark down the crooked path of invention, developing a product and scaling a company is a full-on hero's journey in creativity. Spark and Fire, the new podcast I shared with you late last year, just premiered its first episode with Kemp Powers, director of the incredible Pixar movie, Soul. On each episode of Spark and Fire, an iconic creator, think designers, architects, authors, filmmakers, and musicians, tells their own story about what really happens on the road to success. It's entirely in their own words. No host, no interview, just captivating stories set to terrific music. If you love Masters of Scale, take a moment now and subscribe to Spark and Fire. Feel free to hit pause. I don't mind as long as it's quick and type spark and fire in a search wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, it will help you think more creatively 
about everything. The Venardo's Circus, the magical, musical, traveling circus of your dreams. One of the catchphrases I've used to describe it. Actually, my favorite of all of them is the little circus that could. That's Kevin Venardo's, ringmaster and founder of the Venardo Circus. Yes, circuses can be startups too. Before he started his traveling circus, Kevin was already at the top. I got a job out of college as the ringmaster for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. I had found a dream that I never had that kind of came true. Oh, it really did come true. I was at Madison Square Garden with the, the greatest show on earth. When the greatest show on earth took its final bow, Kevin set out to build a stage of his own. Years later, I started a little show. I convinced the L.A. County Fair to buy a show that didn't exist yet. And then I went out and made it happen. It was a 30-minute circus musical in 120 degrees outdoors. <laughs> and me and a small cast put on a show that is like a musical with aerialists and acrobats and lots of laughs and daredevil stuff and heart. The Bernardo Circus started touring and never stopped. And Kevin learned, just as all startup founders do, that running a successful circus is more than just tightrope routines and acrobatics. Kevin had to master location scouting, ticket sales, and venue permits, just to name a few. He started hiring fast. I have a digital ringleader <laughs> who is in charge of our online world. We also have a full-time PR lead. I also have a tour manager. He's the guy who's working with me on permitting, and that is a full-time job, let me tell you. And then I also have an operations director on the ground with the tent. Ah, the iconic circus tent. A perfect place to peek inside a hidden business behind the business. Kevin knows how vital it is for his show. I think it's one of the most exciting parts of the experience that I provide people is seeing that tent at a distance and then stepping inside of it. In a circus, the tent is a business unto itself. And for the Bernardo Circus to thrive, Kevin would have to master it. First of all, where to set it up? I and my team have identified locations that people might not have known how valuable they could be. Once you find a good spot, you have to get the tent there. Most other circuses, there's dozens of semis, dozens. It takes them a couple of weeks to set that tent up, and they're not making money while the tent is getting set up. We can put up our little tent in four hours. We have one semi. And now it's time to set it up. Kevin and his team of performers had to master this art as well, and it might be the hardest part. It is a pole tent. There are two king poles. There's 22 poles around the outside. Each of those poles goes down to a plate that has three stakes in it. So that means with 22 poles, there's 66 stakes on that tent. They get driven into the ground with an electric jackhammer down. Usually there's a couple of guys that it takes to be driving. If it's a rough surface like asphalt, we would lay out a ground cloth. If it's uh, fresh cut grass and there's no obstruction, we might just put the tent top right down in place. 
We connect all the ratchets and the webbing around. We raise the poles on the outer edge of the top. Once those poles are sort of loosely hanging there in place, the two king poles rise up in position. It used to be elephants were used, and there's a, a wheel that sits at the bottom of each of the king poles. So as the thing rises up into the air, we pull it up into position, and we get the top in place. And you hang the wall and uh, add the trim. And then we all as a team tear the tent down and move on to the next city. Kevin has to know the tent business as well as he knows the entertainment business. Because when it all comes together, it can be a magical thing. We just finished a long tour. And uh, sometimes you get tired. Um, But something about the circus always has made me wake up the next day and want to try again. Because it's worth it. It's worth all that sweat and the blood and the tears. It's worth it. I want to bring them into a world of dreams and magic and wonder. And I want them to bring their families and I want to create memories for them there that will draw them back year after year. As Kevin Vernardos has learned, going from ringmaster to mastering a business is so much more than walking a tightrope. The crowds may be delighted by the aerialists, clowns, and dancers, but what's happening behind the scenes is just as important. That's why I believe you need to master the business behind your business. It just might be the critical factor that lets you break out. You've got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, 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 I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our sponsor, Deloitte. Let's say you're sitting at O'Hare here in Chicago. There is a large commercial aircraft company in Wichita, and you are on one of their aircrafts and you have a mechanical. That's Brian Umbenauer, who leads the Smart Factory Initiative at Deloitte. And you've probably been there, sitting on the tarmac, on a plane grounded by a mechanical failure. All it needs is a single part. Getting that part to the plane is another story. If they look for that part in Chicago and they do not have it, Wichita is looking all over the country for it. Where can they find that part the fastest? Get it to Wichita, get it on that plane so that plane can get you back up in the air and to your destination as close to on time as possible. At Deloitte, Brian spends his time thinking about exactly this kind of situation and how a smart factory ecosystem can improve it. What if I could actually 3D print that part in Wichita and have it to Chicago two hours later? Those are real-time choices that a smart factory and a smart network is going to be able to make. Brian's talking about more than just 3D printing a part. He's talking about rethinking the whole concept of the supply chain. He'll be back to explain later in the show. To learn more about the new smart factory, visit Deloitte.com slash US slash smart factory. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe you need to master the business behind your business. 
It just might be the critical factor that lets you break out. Every business that's achieved huge scale has another one fueling it behind the scenes. And that back-end business often looks very different than its public-facing side. Think of Amazon's massive warehouse operations or the assembly line that builds an iPhone. To put it in tangible terms, picture a high-end restaurant. You walk in to delicate ambiance, gracious waitstaff, and gorgeously plated courses. Mm, excellent tannins. <clears throat> it's pronounced tannins. That's exactly what I said. But behind that dining room is a furiously bustling kitchen, fire and steam. Also, daily shipments of fresh vegetables, early morning fish markets, and the waste removal service that hauls everything away at the end of the night. Imagine that restaurant's owners want to branch out, start a franchise. Conventional wisdom says to take that leap in scale, they should outsource every backend system they can, from linen supply to reservations. But that only works if they also identify what part of the business behind their business makes them who they are. Is it their ability to import exotic wine? Their locally sourced farm-to-table produce? Whatever it is, that's the part of the operation they need to invest in most heavily because that's what will set them apart. And if that business behind the business grows robust enough, it might even become a standalone success. Think of Amazon building AWS to show up their own internal systems, then launching it as the platform that generated and captured 48% of the cloud market. I wanted to talk to Jen Hyman about this because her company, Rent the Runway, has achieved unicorn status by mastering the business behind their public-facing operation. And the two are about as different as you can possibly imagine. Rent the Runway lets customers rent a single dress for a special occasion or subscribe monthly to create a kind of closet in the cloud. For their customers, Rent the Runway offers access to glamour. But underneath the stylish marquee business is the largest dry cleaning operation in the world. And also a bottomless well of product data. Which skirt is a hit with customers? Where do they wear it? How many times can it be cleaned before the buttons fall off? No one knows this but Rent the Runway. And that data is deeply valuable to partners. Because of all this, Jen explains, her company has to be as tech-forward as it is fashion-forward. Rent the Runway is very much a technology business. It yes. always has been. Yep. In fact, 80% of our corporate employees are engineers, data mm. scientists, product managers. Mm. We have very few people that are in what you would think are the traditional aspects of what Rent the Runway would be doing, which is merchandising and marketing. Mm. The first C-level hire that I made was a chief data officer, and he was in my first 10 employees. So from the very beginning of the company, we were thinking about data. Later in the show, we'll dig into the nuts and bolts of the data business behind Jen's business. But first... Let's take a look at how she found herself poised at the nexus of aesthetics and logistics. When did you start thinking that you might be an entrepreneur? I'm still thinking whether I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> I actually thought that I was going to be a journalist. As an undergrad at Harvard, 
She was editor-in-chief of their daily student paper, The Crimson. She prepared herself for a career in news. But then... The first day of my senior year of college was September 11th, 2001, and I ended up writing my thesis on how the mega-merged news structure had framed the content that we received from network news around September 11th because these media organizations were business organizations now, that they had cut investigative journalism, they had cut international bureaus, and therefore we received a very sensationalistic news package in the first few weeks after September 11th. What I find interesting in the story is that even before she graduated, Jen was keenly aware of the scaffolding behind the products we consume, in this case, TV news. She recognized that the -the behind-the-scenes business drove the end result. Jen took a job at Starwood Hotels after Harvard. It turned out to be a serendipitous time. I saw that the world was completely changing, and especially my generation. They were starting to value experiences like travel over ownership, and that was actually changing the hotel industry. Six months into her tenure at Starwood, Jen had an idea. I went to pitch the president of Starwood, and I asked him for $2 million to start a honeymoon registry. where couples could register for their honeymoon and their friends and family could give them room nights and massages. As opposed to registering for pots and pans from Crate and Barrel. Jen was discovering one of her great strengths that would go on a server at Rent the Runway, an ability to spot shifts in the culture that create opportunities. In this case, Jen saw the experience economy coming, and she thought the hotel industry had a new role to play. That's what she told the president of the company. He didn't really respond in the meeting. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. But I went back downstairs to my boss after the meeting and I said, he approved it. (laughs) (laughs) And I proceeded to spend the next three and a half years at Starwood building this business for them. So I became an intrapreneur. Jen's exact tactics aren't for everyone, but I admire her persistence. And that persistence also got her to the next stage, implementation. I had to learn how to work with an engineering team to build an entirely new way of selling travel and how to integrate with partners, how to think about the creative associated with this entirely new brand. What Jen just summed up in one sentence are actually three distinct businesses behind the business. Working with engineering to make sure the technical framework is there. Working with partners to ensure they benefit from your new project and don't undermine it, and making sure your customers are drawn to your idea. You can think of these as legs on a stool. If one of them is wobbly, so is your product. Starwood's honeymoon registry launch was not wobbly. In fact, Oprah named it as one of the most innovative ideas of the year, and the project survives to this day. Jen left Starwood after three years and after a sequence of roles, found herself at Harvard Business School in search of her next step. What she found was her co-founder, Jenny Fleiss. I'm not sure that I ever would have founded Rent the Runway had I not met my co-founder because she was such a galvanizing force in turning this from a fun school project into an actual business. 
the story of Jen's fun school project has become Rent the Runway canon, and with good reason. It's a classic entrepreneurial light bulb moment. I was home in November of 2008 for Thanksgiving in New York City, and I was with my younger sister, Becky, and she had just purchased a $4,500 dress that put her into credit card debt, and it was multiples of her rent at the time. I was yelling at her as her older sister that she should return that dress that she just bought and wear something that was already in her closet. And I was staring at her closet and she was like, everything in this closet is dead to me. I've been photographed and everything. The photos are up on Facebook. I need to wear something new. The clothing itself, the closet was dead. And so the idea that I had is, what if the closet was a living thing? What if this closet that we each have in our bedrooms all over the world could adapt to changes in the weather, changes in our mood, changes in our lifestyle, changes in our size? Why is it that we have this closet that's a museum to who we once were? Jen took this idea of a living closet to her HBS classmate, Jenny Fleiss. As with any great co-foundership, Jenny encouraged Jen to take her idea and turn it into something concrete. Even in the earliest phase, as you're dreaming about everything your new business will do, someone on your team should be focusing on how it's going to work. The first step was for Jen and Jenny to get perspective from someone in the fashion world. And I said, well, we should probably call Diane von Furstenberg because she knows a lot about the fashion business. She was the president of the CFDA. CFDA, Council of Fashion Designers of America. And Jenny was like, well, do you know Dan van Furstenberg? And I said that, of course, I did not. Like any entrepreneur with grit, Jen was determined to find a way. That afternoon, Jenny and I wrote a cold email to 12 different iterations of DVF at DVF.com. One of those emails was correct. Incredibly, this method worked. They got through to Diane von Furstenberg and shared with her their vision for the company. So describe that meeting. Describe the pitch, her reaction, and what the iteration looked like. So we pitched this idea of a white label solution on her website. We said, what if we powered the back end, enabling you on dvf.com to actually rent your product? What I want you to notice is that Jen's first concept for the company was very different from what they ultimately built. She initially pitched a behind-the-scenes operation. Maybe it was her past life as an intrapreneur at Starward. Certainly, it was a savvy move to crack into the fashion industry through an esteemed, iconic designer. Regardless, it shows what an early understanding for the business of how and not just the business of what. That's important for any founder who wants to move from idea to execution. A deep abiding interest in the process and not just the end result can motivate you when the going gets tough. Like when a Diane von Furstenberg tells you no. She said, I don't like this idea of you piloting it on my side. I would only do this if other brands did it too. And in a sense, she kind of gave us the permission in that meeting to go off and be our own site. Rent the Runway's first industry contact 
had inadvertently provided them with a new business model. Why be the rental service for one brand when you could do it for 20 brands or 50? But it was their second call that would reveal to them how they would do it. After we had this meeting with Diane and we were like, you know what, this, let's do this. And I thought, who is apt to hate this idea the most? It's going to be a traditional department store. The second person that I cold called was a guy named Jim Gold, who at the time was the president of Neiman Marcus. This, by the way, is a highly unusual approach for a new entrepreneur, asking not just who will love this idea, but who will be most threatened by it. It goes along with my constant refrain to founders, invite others to poke holes in your idea. And no one's more apt to poke holes than someone who may not want you to exist at all. Jen saw big-name brick-and-mortar department stores not only as her competition, but as powerful gatekeepers that could cut her off from potential suppliers. Because if Neiman Marcus tells a designer they shouldn't trust their merchandise to rent the runway, that designer will listen. I understood that the fashion industry was one that was based on a handshake and trust and relationship. Because how else can you sell a piece of leather for $4,000 and convince people to actually buy that? You are investing in your brand. Hmm. And so you're going to safeguard that brand. You're going to safeguard who gets to distribute it, who gets to carry it. Jen gathered up her courage and met with longtime Neiman Marcus president, Jim Gold. And I went down to meet him at his office in New York City. And I said, okay, what if I were to take designer dresses at the exact same time that they're being sold in Neiman Marcus, and I were to rent them for 5 to 10% of the price to customers? And his response to me was, well, women have been renting the runway for my stores for decades. It's called buying a dress, keeping the tags on, and returning it to the store. I said, how often does that happen? He said, it actually happens 70% of the time. And I was like, okay, why on earth do you let that happen? If you know that people are stealing from you 70% of the time, why is it happening? He said, well, the same customer who's renting from the dress department is buying 10 pairs of shoes downstairs. We actually can't stop the behavior because it's our best customers who are doing it. This was not an ideal situation for any department store. Perhaps it's better to suffer repeat customers' bad behavior than to lose them altogether. There was kind of an entitlement to this behavior that I thought was really fascinating. Mm. This idea like, I'm spending so much money in this store, I deserve to be able to keep the tags on. As Jen talked to the heads of other department stores like Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue, she started to understand the scope of the problem. The dress problem wasn't limited to a single store or chain. It was pervasive, predictable, and so far, unavoidable. It was so clear to me that this behavior of rental was happening already and that it was widely known to the retail world. And in fact, whereas I had suspected that department stores would initially be scared of us, the way they thought about it was, oh, here's a site who's, who might take away our worst customers. This realization was crucial to the way Jen built up not just her main pitch to suppliers, but how she could ensure she had the blessing of the very stores she thought would be her main antagonists. 
they gave us permission to survive at mm. the beginning. Because when we approached designers like DVF, the first phone calls would always be to the CEOs of Neiman Marcus and the CEOs of Saks. And they were like, yeah, you know what? I've met Jen. Kind of like this idea. You should try it. Right at the beginning, Jen was looking to shore up one of the most critical businesses underneath her business, the relationship trade. Relationships are the engine that powers every business, of course. It's how you establish your supply chain as well as your customers. But Jen had observed that in fashion, this was especially true, where brands matter. As she mentioned earlier, a strong brand is what moves $4,000 pieces of leather. I could have very easily gone to third parties, gone to retail stores, bought inventory on sale, and populated my site initially with the exact assortment that I thought my customers would want. But I had this very long-term point of view that we were going to build this closet in the cloud and that the relationships with the industry would be critically important. This long-term view is one I wish more entrepreneurs would adopt early on because the business behind your business is not always easy to retrofit. It's much simpler, more elegant, and cheaper to scale at the same time you're scaling your public-facing brand. In Jen's case, she wanted to build in those relationships from day one. After the break, we'll take a deep dive into the business behind the business at Rent the Runway. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our sponsor, Deloitte. Obviously, COVID has wreaked havoc on many organization supply chains. Some of these organizations have crumbled to their knees because they can't get a screw to finish a product, right? They're literally waiting for a one cent screw because they're out of stock and they're on back order. We're back with Brian Umbenauer of Deloitte. He's been telling us how smart factories and smart networks are poised to disrupt manufacturing as usual. And the pandemic is accelerating that disruption. The fact that they didn't have a dual source or a different contingency plan in place, especially for those manufacturers that are building some of the most advanced products out there, is, I think, really being reconsidered at this point in time. The key to getting that one cent screw, replace the old model of a supply chain with the new concept of a supply ecosystem. Supply chain links can be broken a supply network, it's almost like 2D versus 3D thinking. We actually use the word fabric because it has to be woven into the fabric of what you do. Getting away from the chain and thinking more about the ecosystem and the fabric of the network and how it can be more sustainable is going to be an ever-increasing focus. In the wake of COVID-19, manufacturers are looking for smart ecosystem solutions. It's for them that Deloitte is rolling out the smart factory at Wichita in conjunction with Wichita State University. We're delighted to be in the midst of that conversation, and I believe we'll be in it even more as organizations figure out how they want to invest differently to survive and thrive in the post-pandemic world. How can an ecosystem network even reverse engineer a needed part? We'll find out later in the show. To learn more about the Smart Factory at Wichita, visit Deloitte.com slash US slash Smart Factory. We heard how Rent the Runway figured out its customer-facing business. Now we're going to fast forward a little through Rent the Runway's seed round and VC funding and inventory stocking into their high-profile launch in November 2009. 
Through some scrappy list-building efforts and old-fashioned hustle, they managed to get placement on the front page of the New York Times business section, as well as 100,000 brand-new signups. Positioning Rent the Runway as a tech company, as well as a fashion concern, was by design. Jen recognized that female entrepreneurs get short shrift in this space. A two-woman co-founding team in the New York Times tech section would stand out. But also, the mechanics of the service were newsworthy. Innovations like an integrated reservation system, or the ability to book backup sizes, or providing an option for free, fast returns. And maybe most importantly, the guarantee that the dress a customer receives is clean, stain-free, and functional, with all zippers working and nothing stretched out. The customer experience of Rent the Runway is not the website or an app. That is easy. The customer experience is receiving back millions of units of worn clothing, capturing data on those units, restoring them to perfect condition, dry cleaning them, repairing them, reassembling them with new units, and shipping them out often with a zero-day turnaround time. Hmm. We also understood from the very beginning that if we wanted to create a brand that people used and would recommend, and that was aspirational, that we had to control the end-to-end experience of ensuring that the clothing actually looked great when it went out and that it was perfect. So as promised, let's take a good long look under the hood at the business powering this business. The business of 100% returns is one that traditional WMS systems were not accounting for. WMS. Warehouse management systems. And so we've had to build all of our underlying logistics technology from scratch. I really did think that we were going to be able to outsource part of our technology stack. I thought that we'd be able to outsource potentially our dry cleaning at the very beginning. And I'm like, wait, that, that is the business. As technologically advanced as Rent the Runway's operations are, the most important quality control functions come down to expressly human tasks, like smelling. There's nothing that replaces a sniff test. Uh, uh There's nothing that replaces a visual quality inspection of being able to zip something up and move the zipper down, seeing if the hook and eye can close, stretching the material out and seeing if there are small holes that you wouldn't have noticed via the technology. I think that this is a business where specialized labor has to exist in our warehouses. Making sure they have access to this critical specialized labor isn't as easy as it sounds. In fact, it's a major consideration in where Rent the Runway decides to place its massive distribution centers. It's actually hard to find people who are expert seamstresses. It's often a trade that is passed down from generation to generation in certain communities. The same thing with spotting, the same thing with dry cleaning. The talent recruiting and retention is even more important as it relates to my hourly employees than to my corporate employees. This is such an important point. A consistent misconception among entrepreneurs is that finding skilled hourly labor is easier than filling the C-suite. This is clearly false. And it's something that Rent the Runway recognizes. 
Last year, the company made a policy that their hourly workers would receive the same benefits package as their corporate employees, a move that's so unusual in the garment industry, not to mention the tech industry, that when she first announced it, the reaction of the factory workers themselves was complicated. I thought that the reaction was going to be like euphoria. The reaction was actually shock and skepticism. There must be a catch. Hmm. And I had to work hard over the next few months to prove to my team, no, there's no catch. In fact, you already have these benefits. You can start taking them. You're not going to be punished for them. Eventually, the skilled laborers did start using their benefits, which, besides being the right thing to do, also helped secure the critical foundation of the Rent the Runways behind-the-scenes business. Because it is these team members repairing and restoring the clothes to rent the runways, painstaking standards that gives the company its edge. Jen knew this service was so important, it was worth building themselves. They could have simply farmed out this work to outside partners. Instead, they made it a pillar of operations. Jen isn't the first entrepreneur to make this type of decision. For another example, we can look to the messaging juggernaut, Slack. Here's Slack founder, Stuart Butterfield, recalling the birth of their current business. It just so happened to have risen from the ashes of their gaming company that made a game called Glitch. We were in an interesting position where we still had five and a half million dollars or something like that left in the bank. So we didn't have to shut down. And I think that there's a, a real temptation to go to the last dollar and hope that there's some kind of Hail Mary that will save it. The good thing about shutting it down early was that we had the ability to just not do anything for a couple months. As Stuart and his team plan their next steps, they turn their attention to an internal messaging system they developed. So when we first got started, the natural thing for us to use was a very old internet protocol called IRC, the Internet Relay Chat. So it predates the web by a couple of years. And because it's so old, it misses a bunch of features that are now considered just standard. So one of the things it misses is store and forward of messages. So if I want to send you a message and you're not connected at the moment I want to send it, I just can't. Like There's just no way for me to do it. And so we built a bot that would log all messages that were sent when you were offline so you could read them when you got back online. And once we had that, we're like, oh, oh, it would be super convenient to be able to search these messages. And since we already had them in a database, it was easy to search them. The more Stuart's team built up their message relay system, the better it got. And the better it got, the more people used it. It wasn't something that we thought about or talked about. It didn't have a name. It was just in the background. Without giving it a name, Slack was born to help a specific team excel, Stuart's own team. So when it was time to find his next big thing, he needed only to look in his own backyard. In the same way, Jen was starting to realize the value of her underlying business. Not only had her company perfected the art of cleaning, repairing, processing, and shipping millions of outfits per year, they had also figured out something foundational, how to turn that process into data. The way that I make money is about asset utilization. So my asset is a sweater. My asset is a coat or a dress. 
and I need to understand that asset down to the factory it was made in, the stitching that's used, the fabric that's used, what kinds of chemicals I should use in a dry cleaning process, how do I repair it, how do I store it, how do I care for it, in order to maximize the IRR on that unit over time, and how to extend the duration of its life. And so the data that we are capturing on the inventory and how that flows through the technology is actually what enables us to make money. Calculating the IRR, or internal rate of return, on a sweater or a coat is the initial reason for collecting this data. After all, you want to be able to rent that sweater as many times as you can without sacrificing the user experience. You want to know how long it will take before that sweater wears out which the team in the Rent the Runway warehouses will be carefully noting. You also want to know, how is that sweater reviewed? How did actual customers look in it? Did it fit as expected? That type of data is collected too, voluntarily, input by the customers themselves. Users can post photos of themselves wearing the items. They can list their own height, age, body type, and whether the outfit was a success. Remember how Jen talked about fashion running on trust? I understood that the fashion industry was one that was based on a handshake and trust and relationship. When customers share their experience of the product, that both represents trust and leads to trust. Any dress can look great on a model, but a dress that looks great on a real person who wants to share it? That builds trust in the service and the brand. These insights are essential to Jen's client-facing business. But now that you have that data, you have that data. And who else might need it? Your suppliers, the designers, the manufacturers who made the sweater in the first place. The richness of that data, not to mention its sheer volume, would become a competitive advantage. If you're a best-in-class retailer, and you're selling apparel, maybe you're getting data four times a year. Hmm. After something is sold and it's in a customer's closet, it's essentially a black box to you. You have no idea if that customer ever wore that sweater, how many times she wore it, did it really fit her. We are getting data from our customers over a hundred times a year. And she's telling us, did she wear it? How many times did she wear it? Did she love it? Did she like it? Was it just okay? What occasion did she wear it to? And all of that data that we receive, we're able to port back both into what we buy or manufacture in the first place to how do we clean it? How do we increase the ROI on that unit? And how do we now fill in the gaps of demand that we see? We know more about what women want to wear than most retailers on earth. And that has given us power now to not only buy from brands, but also to take that data to brands and to co-manufacture new collections together. That's right. The data they've collected led them to partnering with designers on original collections. Take the case of Jason Wu, a young designer who rocketed to fame as one of Michelle Obama's favorite designers. Michelle even wore a Jason Wu dress to the presidential farewell address. Through Data Insights, Rent the Runway had clocked that their customers were very interested in his brand. But they'd also clocked that the styles he created didn't exactly match up 
with their customers' needs. Jen's teams took these insights to Wu, and it led to the creation of a new line, initially called Jason Wu Gray, which proved a huge success. That's the power of the data, powering the business behind the business. It's built relationships with customers and with brands. That's also not the end of the story. It was Data Insights that led Rent the Runway to add an unlimited subscription service to their offerings, a service that has overtaken their a la carte model in popularity, especially among professional women who want a constantly refreshing living closet, not just for weddings and parties, but for every day. We understand a huge amount about our customers because our customers are telling us not only about their style or their fit preferences, but they're telling us about their lives. They're telling us that they're pregnant before they tell anyone else in their life. They're telling us that they have a business meeting this week or they're going to Miami next weekend. So we understand a whole lot about the users and a lot about the inventory, and we're able to kind of match those two data sets together. As the company grows, they had a $1 billion valuation this past March. Jen and her team will be keeping a close eye on both their client-facing and behind-the-scenes businesses to make sure they're supporting each other mutually. Because when they don't, it becomes obvious immediately. For example, this fall, when implementing a new software and racking system in Rent the Runway's warehouses, significant issues resulted in weeks of order cancellations and service disruptions that made headlines. Jen knew that trust with her customers is vital, so she issued customer refunds as well as $200 in cash. They're accepting new subscribers again, but it was a sobering reminder that if you're behind-the-scenes businesses run on carefully calibrated systems, your consumer-facing business runs on trust. One part of how you build trust is consistency over time. Exactly. No one trusts from the very beginning. You have to show through your actions. In a way, the business behind your business is most effective when it's invisible to the consumer. If it's working perfectly, they don't even know it's there. Think of your smartphone. It looks like one compact piece of technology with some ability to do apps, make phone calls, do messages. And yet within that is a whole computer of chipsets, modems to talk to your cell network, operating system platforms in order to build applications on top of, complex governance over the application ecosystem and security measures. Yet you can still make a call, answer a call, text people, all of that complexity within a simple container. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our sponsor, Deloitte. We're back one more time with Brian Umbenauer of Deloitte. He's been telling us how manufacturers are rethinking their supply chains as supply ecosystems. One way is to partner with a vendor that makes digital twins, exact virtual replicas of physical products. Digital twins are a big deal. Think about a helicopter. You might have a production line of 100 units, but no two units are alike because of the inefficiencies of the manufacturing process for when those assets were produced over a decade, two decades ago. And you need to 3D print a part for number 57, manufactured in 2004, and it's in Juno. If you had a digital twin of number 57, you could do that. Wichita State is doing some reverse engineering and digital twin work for the Department of Defense. 
they're doing that because some of these assets, they may have been manufactured to get a useful life of 20 years. Well, now we need 30 years and it's going to save the average tax person a lot of dollars in the future. If you think about an auto manufacturer simulating a test drive with a digital twin or an engineer guiding factory repairs while looking at a 3D replica hundreds of miles away, that will save the environment as well. The smart ecosystem can create solutions to think and act a little differently and candidly just do the right thing, reduce carbon emissions or put less waste in the landfills. And these capabilities are going to help drive all of that and more. To learn more about the smart factory at Wichita, visit Deloitte.com slash US slash smart factory. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Jordan McLeod, Catherine Clark Gray, Hallie Bondi, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sapieva, Bob Safian, Christina Gonzalez, and Sarah Sandman. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. Millions of school children are still learning from home instead of at school because of the pandemic. In a 2020 talk from TEDx Wrigleyville, educator Nora Flanagan reminds us of the heroic efforts that teachers undertook to connect with students during this stressful time. And she looks ahead at what we learn from this difficult period to make learning more equitable and more supportive of children when schools do open again. Like TED Talks? You should check out the TED Radio Hour with NPR. Stay tuned after this talk to hear a sneak peek of this week's episode. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Saving money on your car insurance is easy with Progressive. It's an average savings of over $750 for customers who switch and save. In fact, customers can qualify for an average of six discounts on their auto policy with Progressive. Discounts just for starting a quote online or having multiple vehicles on their policy. Get your quote online at Progressive.com and see how much you could be saving. National annual average auto insurance savings by new customers surveyed in 2019. Potential savings will vary. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. The last day of school was barely school. I fielded complicated questions from students who braved public transit to attend. I wiped down every desk between classes and reminded myself to breathe. I held it together so hard when students said goodbye with a strange, scared weight on that word. Colleagues and I exchanged glances in the hallway, at once tense and comforting. We were in this together, even if we were about to part ways for several months. And when school as we know it stopped, 
we all took a long minute just to process that. It seemed impossible. 400,000 students in Chicago now needed to learn from home, and we would need to make that happen, both as the third largest school district in the country and as the human beings who constitute it. But the seemingly impossible keeps becoming reality really fast lately. So teachers jumped and adapted. We learned to host online meetings. We hung whiteboards on our living room walls. Many teachers struggled just reaching out to see if their students were all right. And in addition to make, making remote learning plausible, teachers have also been organizing food drives and uh, housing resources. They have made and donated masks by the thousands, and they've never stopped reaching out. But this isn't new. This isn't dramatic heroism in the face of a pandemic. This is teaching. This is being invested in our communities. As parents, we've had to adapt too, because our working lives and our family lives and our mental health have all collided and coagulated. Well-intentioned, color-coded schedules speckled the internet. Everyone has cried at the kitchen table at least once. Some of us several times. And then there are the students. I've seen students participate in class from the break room at work, where they are frontline for minimum wage to help their families. They've attended a makeshift funeral in the morning and a Google Meet in the afternoon. They are childcare providers. They are experiencing housing insecurity. They are scared. They are stressed, and they are children. When my son's teacher asked a screen full of nine-year-olds if everybody was okay, it almost broke me. How are you? What do you need? Is your family safe? School without school has been traumatic. It's been makeshift. It's been messy. Parents, teachers, and students have fumbled with tech, fumbled even more with expectations, and we've lost so much. But maybe, just maybe, stripped bare like it's been, we can see more. When words like rigor, grit. And a half dozen other educational hashtags don't seem to matter. We can see what's in front of us with new clarity, and that includes the gaps, the inequities, the failures. They're all heightened, but so are the successes. So what's working? What do kids need from their schools? And what do we really mean when we discuss, frame, and fund education? Well, as both a parent and a teacher, I keep coming back to four big ideas. None of them are new; all of them are necessary, and in them, I'm hoping other parents, other teachers, and students will hear echoes of their experiences and outlines of what's possible. We can and we must engage parents, demand equity, support the whole student, and rethink assessment. First and foremost, engaging the parents. Historically, we've isolated parents and teachers, schools and neighborhoods. We say otherwise, but the influential forces in a kid's life rarely intersect with any depth. We have parent-teacher conferences, a STEM night, a bake sale. We all immediately regret agreeing to do, but the parents are here now, every day, inadvertently eavesdropping on class because we're also making lunch or sharing a workspace. We are tutors. We are co-teachers. We are all relearning algebra, and it's awkward, but maybe it's exactly what we needed because parents are seeing how school happens or doesn't, what excites their kids, and what shuts them down, 
whether there's a rubric for it or not. And we're watching our kids learn empathy and balance and time management and tree climbing and introspection and the value of a little bit of boredom. We might not want this to last, but we can learn from it. We can keep parents engaged beyond bake sales. We can take this time and ask parents what they and their kids need. Ask again. Ask in every language. Ask the parents who haven't been able to engage with their children's remote learning. Meet parents where they are, and many will tell you they need us to prioritize their children's wellness, support diverse learners, protect neighborhoods from housing instability and attacks on immigrant communities. So many parents will tell us right now that they can't support their children's learning if they can't support their families. So next, we demand equity. Our school system currently serves a student population that includes 75% low-income households and 90% students of color. The fight for equity in Chicago is as old as Chicago. So what do we need right now? For starters, we need equal tech infrastructure for all. This isn't an option anymore. We have to close the tech gap. These are choices, and we don't have to keep making them. We can refuse the isolation and competition for resources that pit schools and neighborhoods against one another. Get rid of rating systems and budgeting formulas that punish kids for their zip codes in a city that's been segregated since its inception. The fight for equity in Chicago did not become life or death in a pandemic. It's been life or death for a long time now. We need to care about other people's children, and not just as data points alongside our own. Third, we need to support the whole student. As much as parents might be exhausted by remote learning and can't wait to get the kids back to school, or teachers can't wait to get back into our classrooms and do some real teaching, chances are the kids miss the playground more than the classroom, the activities as much as the academics, that social emotional piece that forms the core of human learning. We will need social workers, nurses, and counselors in every school. So much. We will need them as we try to help our students feel safe, process their trauma and their grief, and find their way back to school. To support our students, we will also need smaller class sizes and adequate staffing across the building. Something teachers have demanded again and again with the overwhelming support of our students' parents. We will need art class more than ever. And physical education, and music programs, and computer science, and if wading through conspiracy theories on the internet for the last few months has taught us anything, it's that we need to put a librarian back in every school right now. Finally, let's rethink assessment. We can dial down the testing a lot. Elementary school students in Chicago spend up to 10% of their school year just taking standardized tests. We don't know how many hours of real learning are lost preparing for those tests, but we know that the test prep software alone costs Chicago about $10 million a year. How much more could we do if we got that time and money back? And do we have to go back to obsessively quantifying everything a student attempts, weaponizing grades as a means of compliance, and reinforcing inequity at every grade level? Or can we keep considering alternative models like proficiency-based grading programs and stop making school about scoring better than the kid next to you? 
150 colleges and counting are now test optional for admissions, including NYU, the University of Chicago, and the entire California state system, because they know there's more to a student than a GPA and an SAT score. You know who else knows that? The students themselves. If we are having conversations about any of this and not authentically including and empowering students every step of the way, we're not having conversations about any of this. We have a moment now, a short moment, and so much to get done before the comforting choruses of back to normal get too loud, when we can take what we've seen and experienced, plant our feet, and demand better. We can make a system as massive as Chicago pivot to better serve our students, their families, and our communities. If three million teachers can relearn their jobs in a weekend, we can change school systems to better fit what we know and what we've known for a while now. And if we can set clear expectations for our students, we can do the same for our school districts and our cities. I want to go back to school. I can't wait to go back to school. I miss the hum of the hallways and the weird energy of a room filling up with sophomores and a better kind of exhaustion from putting my heart and my guts into what I love doing every day. But we can't miss this moment. We can't let go of the mantra that we are in this together. So don't tell us what is or isn't possible. Don't tell us it's too hard or too expensive or too aggressive. It's been our job since the start of this pandemic. No, it's been our job since always to make what seems impossible really happen. And when the stakes are this high and the evidence is this clear, it's our only option. Part of police officer Jeremy Brewer's job is delivering bad news. As we sat together, she asked me one question. What am I supposed to tell my kids? I could feel she didn't want me to answer that question. She wanted me to connect to the depth of that experience she was going through. Stories from speakers found through TED's Global Idea Search. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Subscribe or listen to the TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice the opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.